screw the iMac, LG has a 38-inch curved monitor. Oh, and by the way, it's also a PC with Ryzen and supports Ubuntu 16.04. How about that? How about that? It's the LG all-in-one. Ready for this catchy name, Wes? The LG 38CK900G-B. That rolls right <laughs> off the tongue. <laughs> yeah, it comes with uh, a Vega Graphics, 8 gigabytes of DDR4 RAM, um, the AMD Ryzen chip, and a 128 gigabyte SSD, which is blank by default, but lists support for Ubuntu 16.04. Beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I wouldn't mind an ultra-wide IPS display with a 21.9 aspect ratio and a 3840 by 1600 mm. resolution. The only downside, uh, you got to contact them for pricing because they're probably going to want to sell you about 5000 because these are all for professional deployments. <laughs> Let's see if we can't find something a little more reasonably cheap. You're saying we're going to outfit the whole JB crew with these? That's what you're saying? <laughs> right on. That's a great idea. That'll be our standard broadcast hardware. I actually think we could make a good business case for that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I would be more productive. I mean, I'm staring at two separate screens here. It's really killing it. Oh, you need an ultra wide. You would be more productive. You might even be ultra more productive. Yeah, right? All those problems I have in my life, gone. Oh, Wes, if only it was that easy. This is Linux Unplugged, episode 251 for May 29th, 2018. Welcome to Linux Unplugged, your weekly Linux talk show that's not so sure what that smell is, it's sniffing around. My name is Chris. My name is Wes. Hello, Mr. Payne. We have such a fun show put together today. I'm glad we're able to get this connection working so that we can talk about great things like a massive donation going to the GNOME Foundation, Thunderbolt Networking coming to Linux, major distribution releases, and Mark Shuttleworth is turning up the heat on Canonical's rhetoric about Red Hat. Plus, we've got a great app pick. We'll do a look back at Fedora 26, some new inbound open source stuffs, or at least some stuffs you're going to get on your Linux desktop, and then, perhaps, the conclusion to our quest for the best Linux laptop of 2018. I've been taking in your feedback. We put a vote out to the audience. We're looking at the numbers, and we're looking at the suggestions. At the end of this week's episode, one laptop will go off our list. We'll put another laptop on there if we can come to an agreement. And regardless of what laptop on our list you're thinking about getting, we'll wrap up with some tips for whichever one that are just great to keep in mind when you're trying to buy a system to run Linux. So we got so many good things to get into. Plus, I'm on the road. Tell you a little bit about why I'm in this awkwardly painted and smelling place in Grants Pass, Oregon on my way down to Texas. We'll tell you about what's going on with that and all other kinds of goodies. It's, it's a packed, packed episode. So let's not go any further without bringing in our mumble room. Time appropriate greetings, virtual lug. What's up? Hello. Hello. <laughs> Hello, guys. I am glad to have all of you here this week because we have so many things to get into. And uh, I thought let's start off with some good freaking news. Gnome is announcing a $1 million donation over the next two years. An anonymous donor, and I'd love to know who this anonymous person is, has donated a million dollars over the next two years, some of which will be matching funds with other folks' donations. That is huge, right? And say, say what you will about Gnome, we've, we've had a lot of discussions about it recently, but... 
they do great work. It's, it's wonderful that we, they have, we have this good open source project, but open source is hard. It takes a lot of effort. And yes, they have, you know, funding from Red Hat and other people, but a million bucks over two years, that's just a big commitment that things are going to get better. People will continue doing that awesome hard work and uh, us freeloading community, we're going to see the benefit. No kidding. That's what, $125,000 a quarter? That's probably how it'll get trickled into the foundation too. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it, which is a serious amount of money. Either way you crack it, even if it is over uh, like quarters or months or whatever. I like that. I like that story a lot. I've seen a lot of people talking about it. And it's not like big, big news, but I think it's still worth mentioning. And I, I wonder if maybe one day we'll get to figure out who it is. Uh, but moving on, let's talk about Thunderbolt networking on Linux. So Thunderbolt, like the spec, allows for peer-to-peer networking uh, with uh, really relative simple simplicity on macOS and Windows. You plug two machines into each other over the Thunderbolt connection and it just works. That has technically been possible on Linux via the kernel, but there really hasn't been anything in user space to facilitate the networking. And that's changed now, thanks to uh, Christian Kellner and Thomas Holler from Network Manager. And they're working together to figure out what in user space needed to get done to make Thunderbolt peer-to-peer networking work. Think about this. You have the massive, fast PCI bus to PCI bus Thunderbolt interface, and you could run networking over that. And if you now connect, if you have modern um, Network Manager and modern-ish Linux kernel, it hasn't been in there for like a super long time, but if you have a kind of a recent one, you're good. You you match, you match those two things up, and all you have to do after that is plug a Thunderbolt cable into one end and another end, and they detect the presence, and they set up the networking. The way it works is when you plug in a Thunderbolt device, it actually creates a little um, uh, device name uh, on your file system in sysfs. It creates a little device, and there's some certain attributes if it supports networking. And now what, what, what's technically happening here is a UDEV rule. And network manager are working together. They when they see a Thunderbolt device that has that networking attribute, they can you can now you get an option to set them up, and within a couple of seconds, you now have a local network running over Thunderbolt. That is just so cool, super handy. I think of so many times where you know you have to like figure out a crossover cable, and then you probably have to understand how networking works to make this work. So if a layperson can use that, that is totally slick. I'm also curious. I wonder if you could pixie boot off this because then you could have like a Docker container or or just a little script on your setup to have a little you know TFTP pixie boot server running, plug in a Thunderbolt cable between com- two computers, and away you go. No more USB drives. That's a great idea. That is a really clever idea. Like a great rescue system, like a laptop. If you had if you had machines you were saving that had Thunderbolt and you had a laptop with Thunderbolt, you could just blow them away and reload them using network boot over Thunderbolt. That's a cool idea, Wes. Yeah, the other nice part here is that uh, they link to the UDEV rule. So if you're like me and you don't often use Network Manager, you can just load this thing yourself and get it working. Ah, uh, yes, yes, that is really nice too. Yeah, I uh, I could definitely uh, appreciate that right now. I have two I have two laptops that are right next to each other physically, but they cannot talk to each other because the Wi-Fi here is just a mess. And where I'm at right now, I'll tell you more about that in a minute. But where I'm at right now is just it's devastating for networking. And if I could just take one cable and hook these two machines up, and neither one of them have an Ethernet port either. Ironically, <laughs> they have USB-C, but they do not have an Ethernet port. So, <laughs> oh, that's the world we live in now. Um, all right, well, we're we're uh, we have different segments of the show today. I'm trying out a few different uh, format options while I'm on the road, and I thought some. Uh, 
category names might help me put my head around what we're going to talk about. So uh, this next one is Making Ourselves at Gnome. And this is Endless. And Endless 3.4.0 has come out. Now, you may recall we had a chat with Michael Hall a while ago. He's now working at Endless. And he wrote a post on their community.endlessos page. Uh, about the new Endless 3.4. And they say there's lots of exciting features, but some of them that are jumping out at me right now is options to manage your data consumption in really smart ways. Now, you'll recall Endless has been really built as an OS that is really graceful at handling when you have no connectivity. They have local Wikipedia articles and stuff like that. It it gracefully switches between online and offline. And they're just doubling down on that. And I I think this is really cool. And one of the ways that they're doubling down on this offline stuff, and you're going to think this is weird at first, but stick with me here. They're introducing an Android companion app for Endless OS. And I'm going to tell you more about that here in a moment. But before we before we go off in too many different directions, let's let's focus on the data consumption stuff. You can now mark in Endless 3.4, which is you know based on GNOME and GTK stuff. You can now mark your connection as having a limited or unlimited data, and then that tor- that tells the operating system to enable automatic updates, to to wait until you have good convenient uh, wireless or whatever you might have. Like you can now use a little bit of intelligence there between it's trying to detect how much bandwidth you have and you being able to now implicitly tell it to not use too much bandwidth. is You can just totally turn off automatic updates in those situations. And they're combining that with schedules. So you can now also say, with all exceptions except for these days and these hours, just turn off automatic updates. Don't even do a, an apt update. Don't even do an apt update. Wow. And now you can just go in there and there is a GNOME settings dialog that exposes all of that. That's kind of nice. And I could definitely see a use case for that um, outside the U.S. and outside uh, places that have pretty generally good connectivity. I kid you not, the town I am in today has no internet. <laughs> the whole town has no internet where I'm at today. So don't do any updates. No, I should I would definitely not. <laughs> and so like I could kind of, you can really, even, even in the quote-unquote West, you can appreciate features like this. But let's talk about that companion app for a second, because that's probably what piqued your interest. This is an interesting idea from Endless, and it's an app that's going to allow you to view content from your computer on any Android device. Now remember, the Endless OS has a whole bunch of native apps that they've created with offline data. And they say, while the Endless Companion app itself is not publicly available, all of the support for this app has been built into Endless 3.4 that is available. The Companion app was created because we found that many of our users have a single Endless computer in a household with multiple people trying to access the information at the same time. With the Endless Companion app, everyone will be able to access the information found on their computers with any compatible phone or tablet without using any internet connection or data connection. So it's all going to be over the LAN. Oh, really? Yeah. That's kind of neat, right? That's a great, great idea. Smart. Especially in in, in countries where perhaps internet connectivity is very, very limited, like apparently Oregon, um, which is now a country. Endless 3.4 is also upgrading to GNOME 3.26, and it will ship with Linux kernel 4.15, which brings the support up for a whole bunch of new hardware. And then they've also updated some of their own endless apps. And they've also made the decision to include Adblock directly in with Endless. So when you, uh, it just it's just pre-installed. Adblock is just pre-installed with Endless. That's a lot I just laid on you, Wes, but um, Endless is, is sort of reminding me, and I don't know if you recall, but there was a distribution called Xandros back in the day, and I hope they don't mind this comparison. 
Zandro spoke in a way that is familiar when you read Endless. Like, for example, Michael writes, and Michael, Michael Hall is fully technically competent. So Absolutely. They're, they're writing this in a way that is, is very, um, very targeted. Like, they talk about how they've updated their open source core. They're not necessarily talking about how they've updated glibc or they're on the latest version of ButterFS programs. They're, they're talking about the open source core. Like it's more generic. It's more about a whole inclusive operating system. And it's just what you need to know. It's none of the extra details. Yeah. Do you think, my fair, my, do you think that's a fair comparison? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm just impressed with the focus here. You know, the, um, they have some consistent design vision. And some of these features are things that you, you see in competitors or you see in other you know, other operating systems that span the mobile desktop world and have you have expectations from mobile of how you can manage a device, especially for lay users. And they're kind of taking it to the next level that you don't have in a lot of other common Linux desktop environments. That companion app is a really interesting strategy, huh? Oh, yeah, ab- absolutely. I mean, and, and if it's, it works on the LAN, you can just manage it. If you're kind of the, you know, the, the smart one in your house or you can teach people to use it, then boom, super useful. Anyways, uh, check out Endless OS if you're interested. I don't, I don't feel like it has a strong draw to our audience, but I do really like what they're doing over there, and I really respect that they're trying to build an OS that is still very useful without internet connectivity. Because I do find like it's it's kind of pathetic when I sit down with my laptop and I have no connectivity. I don't really have anything to do on my laptop. Like there's there's not like a lot to do locally, and I feel like. And this seems obvious on its face, but I still think it's worth mentioning. I feel like 20 years ago, that wasn't the case. Like, I would go online a right. little bit and do stuff, but the most of the stuff that I did, I did locally on my computer. But now thinking back, I don't even remember what I was doing because it wasn't games. I mean, it was sometimes games, but I was I always did stuff locally. I mean, maybe you just you need some DOS locally. You can fire that up when you don't have internet connection, and you'll you'll figure it out what you were doing. Yeah, <laughs> just get back in the just get back in the zone, huh? Uh, so I kind of like the idea of taking these computers and making them a little bit more valuable without connectivity because they're so powerful and they're so expensive. It's kind of pathetic that they're so worthless without an internet connection, um, and it, you know it it it's. It's sort of the anti-Chromebook in a way, and I also appreciate that. All right, well, uh, let's keep moving on, and i got to tell you about my internet connectivity situation today. It is, it is, I've never had a situation like this in my entire life where the town goes out of, go, loses internet, and it's, it's slowly coming back, but it is, it is so awful, uh, and so I'll tell you all about it, and let's start by uh, clearing the decks and thanking Linux Academy for making this show possible. As I am watching someone almost get in an accident right now as they pull out onto the road, I can't even I can't even tell you about the late nights after I worked hours and hours at my job. I would then get in my car and I would drive down to the community college so I could take my Linux courses. Wow, have things changed. Now I can do it from the comfort of my laptop, from the comfort of my desk, or the comfort of my home. LinuxAcademy.com slash unplugged. You don't have to be like this Subaru driver here who almost just got in an accident right outside my window. So that way they can go out and get something done. You can take advantage of it using something called the internet. I know it's new. You're going to have to get an account, but I think it's worth dialing up to and trying out. The information superhighway is going to be game-changing. And these companies are going to be able to put things online where you can just tap in and get the knowledge directly. And, oh wait, 
oh wait, that's already happened, and it's Linux Academy. Go try it out at linuxacademy.com slash unplugged. You can sign up for a free seven-day trial. Kick the tires. They got hands-on scenario-based labs to give you real experience. I say that with emphasis because that means after you're done at Linux Academy, you can go do it in production. And you're not going to be all anxious and nervous that you've never done this before. You can speak with authority on a topic because you'll have done it. You pick the courseware, you set the distribution, the servers that spin up match that. They got human instructors, whatever you get stuck, you need help, they're there for you. They're there. If they're not there helping you, they're helping other people, they're updating content, they're making sure your subscription stays valuable. So go to linuxacademy.com slash unplugged, the number one resource online for people to learn more about anything that runs Linux or anything that Linux runs on top of. linuxacademy.com slash unplugged, free seven-day trial. Yeah, so I'm on my way down to uh, Austin, Texas. I'm going down there actually to see Linux Academy. They're in Keller, but I'm going down there um, the week after Linux Fest Northwest or Linux Fest Texas. Um, I'm going to Linux Academy. So speaking of Linux Academy, but right now I'm on my way down to Austin and I've stopped in Grants Pass, Oregon. And uh, that's where everything went wrong. <laughs> it's been a really hard day. Um, and I'm, I'm actually, in a way, I'm really relieved to be here chatting with you guys because uh, today has been, you know, it's like, you know what I mean? Like when you've gone through like something and then like you're going back to a little bit of routine, how it just feels right. You know that feeling? The comforting comforts of home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we left early Monday um, after. Uh, so uh, turns out, Wes, Levi is allergic to bees in a really, really bad way. No. Oh, Levi, poor buddy. Yeah. He um, he got stung on just like, you know, here we just went to a park, went for a walk, and uh, he got stung by a bee. And no big deal. It started with some really bad swelling around his eyes. And then it turned into like mumps all over his face, like his face got all bumpy and old and weird looking and his ears started itching. And then, you know, by then we were already, we already hot on it. We knew something was wrong by then and we'd already given him a Benadryl and, um, it, then it spreaded to the rest of his body and he got hives, these big red hives and his hair looked all mangy and gross everywhere. And he was out of it. He was a different dog. It was weird. And, uh, we had to take him into the emergency doggy. ER, and they gave him like a, an epi shot, they gave him uh, a steroid, and they gave him more Benadryl. And so he has been in full recovery for three days. It's been, he has been a totally different dog. It's been really weird because, you know, he's this happy-go-lucky, smart, clever, curious dog. He's always spunky and wanting to have fun. Yeah, and he's just been totally like slow and mopey and sad and he doesn't want to jump up on anything and his skin hurts and so today he's finally been getting better but we got a little bit of a late start and uh, so we drove hard yesterday for eight hours and ended up in Grants Pass which is our first planned stop on the route to get uh, some work done on Lady Jupes to get the suspensions upgraded to put in some sway bars and put in some sumo shocks and all these things that they have coney shocks and sumo springs and all these things that they're putting in there <laughs> it's really funny the names <laughs> you got to be robust if you're venturing across the country yeah you know you do you're right exactly and uh, he took me under this so they 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 park it up on this uh, you know like this whole this whole rig and then they've got like this trench underneath it and so uh, the guy's name was Eric. He took me underneath, and Eric showed me like all the different stuff, and it was just really, it was a really cool experience. Uh, and then they're like, you know, and we also have a rental car that you guys can use um, 
for the day. And, uh, you know, you can drive around town. We're like, well, this is great because I have to get to a motel room where I'm going to be recording my show because I'm not going to be able to record in the RV because they're banging on the frame. So we get in the car and they're like, oh, before you go, uh, we have this uh, waiting room. Do you want to, you know, if you have to do it, because I, I mentioned, you know, I, you know, I need to get uh, some connectivity. We have, a, we have a waiting room with Wi-Fi. Would you like to just check that out? I'll go over there and do a speed check. So I get in there and I'm, I'm, I'm talking to people like, yeah, no, the Wi-Fi doesn't seem to be working. Like, uh, <laughs> go figure, right? <laughs> and so we, uh, we leave, <clears throat> come over to the motel. And the motel's like, yeah. And we're having internet problems today. Our, our Wi-Fi isn't working. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. Well, um, tell you what, I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to go uh, drive around for a little bit and I'll be back. Uh, see, we'll see about the internet problem. And so I go over to La Quinta and to a, to a Holiday Express and all these different like hotels. No, everybody's internet's down today. Internet's not working today. So I'm at the last hotel that I was going to try and I'm in the lobby and there's a guy who clearly looks like an IT guy because he looks just like I do. And so I'm like, and I got Coda radio, I got a Coda radio shirt on, you know? And so he's, so he's like, Oh yeah, no, no, the internet's out in the town today. I'm like, what? Yeah, no, there's no internet here in the town today. I'm like, what do you mean? There's no internet in the town today. <laughs> Cause like, this is all hitting me at once. He's like, yeah, I don't know. There's something going on and our provider has an outage what? and I'm like provider singular. <laughs> Like, what? You have one provider? <laughs> no. And uh, yeah, yeah, no internet's out. I'm like, oh, God. Okay, well, I guess I'll have to use my phone. All right, you know, I, I, that's fine. So I come back to the original motel that I, I had booked, and uh, I go in there, and I'm like, all right, yeah, I think we're going to do it. Well, that's fine. Nobody's got, nobody's got Wi-Fi. She's like, okay, great. Well, Mr. Fisher, I would love to get you in your room, but we have lost the key to your room. No, that's not a thing. That cannot be a thing. Yeah. And this is a uh, one o'clock. The show starts at two o'clock. And I'm like, um, okay, well, I have a work thing and uh, I kind of need to be in there by 1.30. Is that going to be doable? So the gal looks around. She's like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my husband over to the hardware store and he's going to go get a new key made right now for you, Mr. Fisher. So why don't you just hang tight and uh, he'll go get that key made for you. So he runs over to the hardware store, the husband, and he gets the key made. And uh, I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to go get a bite to eat. Might as well go get some food. So I go get a bite to eat. I come back to the hotel. The story's almost over. I get back to the hotel, and the husband's there. And the, the, lady's, the lady that runs the place is gone. And I'm like, he's like, you know what? I can check you in because I know you got a work thing. I'm like, yeah, I do have a work thing. Thank you. He's like, here, I got the key made for you, which, by the uh-huh. way, barely works. It doesn't fit well. He's like, okay, well, just a couple of things you need to know. Uh, we are pet friendly, but you, uh, you cannot let your pet on any of the chairs. Do not let your pet on the bed and do not let your pet in the bathroom. Okay. All right. Okay. So that's a lot of, that's a lot of policing of my dog. Uh, also no smoking. I'm like, okay, that's fine. I don't plan to smoke. That's not a big deal. He's like, no, really you can't smoke. I'm like, that's fine. I don't smoke. That's fine. Well, but you know what I'm saying, right, man? And he, he takes like the, like holding a doobie hand gesture, you know, up to the lips and does the, I'm saying no smoking. You know what I mean, man? And I'm like, yeah, I gotcha. No smoking. It's like, okay, I'm just saying. Wow. <laughs> what, like, what, what do I, do I look like some big pothead? Like, did I, did I accidentally wear my hair in dreads or something? <laughs> yeah. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, okay, can you let me in the room? <laughs> That's all I could say because my dog won't smoke any yeah. joints. I promise. <laughs> like I'll, I'll cut Levi off for a couple of hours. He's not feeling well, anyways. So I get in the room, and uh, sure enough, it's like you know, 
two minutes until we're supposed to be live. I'm wiring everything together. Wi-Fi is just not working at all. And I get a text message from Hadia. I just got in a car accident. What? Is she okay? She's okay. She's okay. You know, she's the, the place that's working on Lady Jupes. Let us borrow their car. They got like a little Dodge Neon. And she backed it. So <clears throat> the thing about Grant's Pass, the whole town is a town of one ways. It's all one ways. It's all one ways, except for the side streets. It's all one ways. And uh, so she's pulling onto a one way, uh, but she was pulling the wrong way because she didn't, she didn't recognize that. And uh, so some people started honking at her. She wasn't, it was, it was like friendly honks, not like, oh my God, you idiot. It was like, hey, better watch out. So she puts the car in reverse and backs up and backs up right into a pole. Oh. <laughs> so, so I am five minutes from lifetime. And uh, girlfriend has backed the car into a pole and is now I'm dealing with that. And I got no internet connectivity. And I'm sitting here thinking to myself, why am I doing this? <laughs> like, I just want to do a show. <laughs> I just want to record the show. And uh, so finally, I got the key from the guy. I get in the room. I get everything set up. I get the uh, text message from Hadia about the car accident. Make sure that she's okay. Make sure that we're squared away with the place that's loaning us the car. And... Uh, now, as I go live, the Wi-Fi is working here just enough for us to have this conversation because I've only got two bars of signal. So I've got one machine on the phone and I've got one machine on the Wi-Fi that's still dropping 3% of all of my packets. <laughs> well, I mean, you can't be a perfectionist, Chris. Come on. I know. I know. So there you go. That is my trip to Texas so far. I feel like there needs to be a central database of cell signal and, uh, you know, all of those things. Like, there needs to be one central repository of how, of, of how all of that works. But uh, anyways, <clears throat> the journey continues on. And now I'm in some weird motel room that smells really strange and is very, very yellow. Oh, hi there. And my lady friend just got back from her walk. And so we're, we're stationed here in Grants Pass. And while they work on the rig for one and a half days or so, and then once the work completes, we'll uh, continue on our trip. Uh, anyways, uh, if you want to, if you want to hang out while we're in Texas, jupiterbroadcasting.com slash Texas for the meetup, uh, telegram group. And then, uh, you can also get uh, yourself a little swag at uh, teespring.com slash JB Texas is where you can get the swag at. Yeah, it is a good looking shirt. I'm very happy with it. And I love tucks with a beard teespring.com slash JB Texas to get yourself that. All right, let's talk about uh, Canonical and Ubuntu and the Red Hat and OpenShift and OpenStack and all of those things, because that's what everybody else is talking about right now. So there was a summit just a bit ago, the OpenStack Cloud Summit or some shenanigans like that, that I didn't make it down to. But uh, your good buddy, Wes, uh, Stephen J. Van Hoff-Nicholas made it. And uh, Stephen Jay, he went down and he noticed that there's been a tone change recently. And uh, I'm not surprised, if you think about it. Canonical is moving towards an IPO, and so perhaps it's time for a tone change. Shuttleworth started out his keynote, um, sort of typical of a keynote. He said, our mission is to remove all friction from deploying OpenStack. We can deliver OpenStack deployments with two people in less than two weeks, anywhere in the world. So, you know, a typical kind of opening to a keynote speech and, and kind of compelling, like, you know, really selling it there is like, we have a real advantage here. We're using upstream technology. It's super fast and easy to get it deployed and you can do it with less staff. People love hearing that. Yeah. But then things started to heat up a little bit. Then Amazon came into the conversation. 
and stick with me because I think this is I think this is indicative of where Canonical is going and what they feel like their their value is going to be. So he said, Mark Shuttleworth, Amazon has increased efficiency, so now everyone is driving down the cost of infrastructure. Everyone engages with Ubuntu, not Red Hat or VMware, Google, IBM. Microsoft are investing and innovating to drive down the cost of infrastructure. Every single one of those companies works with Canonical to deliver public services. Then Shuttleworth got down to brass tacks and he said, not one of them engages with VMware to offer those public services. They can't afford to. Clearly they have the cash, but they don't have the complete on efficiencies and so does your private cloud. So Canonical is rolling out a migration service to help users shift from VMware to a fully managed version of Canonical's Ubuntu OpenStack distribution. Customers want this because when they take out VMware, they are Canonical is regularly told that our fully managed OpenStack solution costs half of the equivalent VMware service. Wow. Yeah, taking some shots at VMware in a big way. But things got even more interesting when Red Hat came up. When we're invited to bid and present head-to-head with Red Hat, we win four out of five times, including in companies that have never had any other Linux than Red Hat in the building. Four out of five times. He then goes on to add that Google, Microsoft, and IBM will be using and are using Ubuntu to underpin their Kubernetes offering because if you want to build on your OpenStack service for containers, it makes sense to use exactly the same stack. It's half the cost of VMware, a third of the cost of Red Hat, and it's a truly portable multi-cloud Kubernetes. And uh, he's really touching on the difference here between what Canonical and Red Hat are offering for this space. Canonical is focusing on delivering inexpensive services and then offering support on upstream code, upstream OpenStack, and upstream Kubernetes, right? Whereas Red Hat is offering branded OpenStack and branded Kubernetes. Do you agree, Wes? Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I can see I can see some, some large enterprises where they still they have that trust relationship where they want those kinds of, you know, whatever additional features. But for people that are, yeah, in the commodity market, trying to be as efficient as possible, who are reselling, who are managing a cloud service for other people to use, you want something where, yes, you have support from Ubuntu, but it's, it's all open source, it's all standard, everything you already know works, and if for some reason you need to shift or you no longer want to pay Ubuntu, okay, it's all open source, you've already built your experience with it. it, it it's really a good value proposition. Yeah, yeah, and I, I like um, I like just sort of dropping the pretense and just saying, look, Canonical is bringing you a more cost-effective solution. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to We're trying to compete on cost, and we're trying to compete on upstream we're trying to compete on with we're trying to compete with not against upstream but using upstream right and then as upstream adds features their offerings just get better and better right and i think that's the opposite of how a lot of people in the consumer space would look at red hat and canonical they look at red hat oh red hat's going to upstream they'll upstream at all they're using everything upstream and Canonical is the one that has the not invented here syndrome. Have you ever heard of Unity? Oh my God, right? But in the reality, in the space where they're going to try to make some money, where it's going to really matter for the IPO, their strategy is to lean on upstream and then support that. I'm just saying as somebody who would be coming into this kind of with a fresh take, if I was going to deploy something like this, that would be the approach I prefer. Do you think I'm missing something, Wes? I guess it's maybe the the value that Red Hat's adding in there that I just don't appreciate. Yeah, I mean, they do they do have years of experience in this space providing enterprise support, providing customized solutions. So if you are like an older generation of company, if you have a lot of your own on-premises structure and you have special needs that are already invested in that ecosystem, 
or you just have a lot of cash to burn, then I think I think that could still make sense. I can still see people doing it. There's a lot of love for Red Hat. And their services, you know, they are open, there's most of them are open source. They they are good, but Ubuntu is just that lowest common denominator. All your developers, they're already using Ubuntu. No, who spins up Red Hat containers to dev on? Maybe you're using Fedora, Ubuntu. It's all the same. You get the same experience. And then you're just using OpenStack and Kubernetes. It's it's It seems like a winner. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, we see uh, more competitive talk like this. That might be the way to put it. Is not aggressive or however else is being framed by ZDNet, but maybe just more... Um, more more delineation between this is what Red Hat offers and this is what Canonical offers. Because it seems to me that they have a job here to do. And Mark is uh, the number one salesperson right now. The job is to IPO. The job is to go public. And the way you do that is by clearly differentiating what makes your company a valuable standout in the space versus the, com- the competition that could be using similar technology. And really the only way to do that is to message your differences. And how else are you going to do that than by clearly saying we do this better than VMware and we do that better than Red Hat? Yeah, it feels like a good spirit. Though, you know, it's, it's healthy competition. Hopefully everyone benefits. Now, let's talk about something bubbly and fun, sort of to sort of offset the big serious enterprise stuff that we just talked about there. There was a wrap-up of KDE Connect Development Sprint. And I think this is some good stuff here. It happened between March 23rd and the 25th of 2018. And they were working to get KDE Connect developers gathered in one spot in Barcelona to work for a weekend. And some good stuff was, as you might expect, developed. They kicked off the sprint by going through a backlog of ideas to decide what was worth implementing and then also focus on what bugs needed to get fixed. And one of the most requested features of KDE Connect was the ability to send SMS messages from the desktop. They already supported SMS to a certain degree with the ability to reply to most messages, but that wasn't quite enough. And some people even went as far as trying to roll their own solution in the meantime. But during the sprint, Simon and Alex started working on a fully featured interface for sending SMS easily from the desktop that includes full conversation views and the full contacts list support from your phone. They also worked on improving the functionality of the multimedia controls. So now it is possible to display the album art from your desktop on the Android device, both in the lock screen and in the multimedia notifications. And also, you know, less visible, but just crucial parts of what makes KDE Connect so useful is the integration with the system. And KDE Connect got some work on integrating with other systems like Nautilus. So people don't have to use Plasma or Dolphin to have all of the great features of KDE Connect. I, it just makes me so happy to hear this, Wes. It makes me honestly want to get an Android device. Have you thought about setting this up? Yes, actually. I think I might do that uh, after this year episode. I've had KDX, KDE Connect running in the past on multiple machines, but it was always a little more awkward, especially like some of the stuff that was missing, like the Nautilus support. So this is really ramped up. I don't know if I care about all of these features, but better integration with Pulse Audio Control, the SMS stuff. I don't frequently send SMS, but when I do, I would much rather do it from my desktop. So this is huge usability wins. I'm excited to give it a try, even on my GNOME systems. What the hell's going on with KDE? What's going on with Plasma right now? Why is it getting... What's going on? It's like everybody's talking about it these days. It's kicking butt. It's the, it's a renaissance. It's blown up. It's blown up. Uh, 
I just I feel like uh, we're talking these days about Qt all the time. We're talking about the Plasma Desktop, and I don't think it's just because I've started using it. I think I think something's happening here. I feel like I feel like I feel like things are changing. Uh, how's your Kubuntu experience going so far, Popey? Are you on Neon? I'm still on Neon. Now I saw you tweeting or something the other day about some GNOME issue, but do you do you kind of do you kind of use it on a regular basis, honestly? And do you agree that there <laughs> seems to be more buzz these days about the whole Plasma stack? So, uh, in answer to your first question, yes, I use it all the time. I have two. I have two uh, computers. Well, that's a lie. I have tons of computers, but two main ones that I'm sat at most of the time. So, if I'm sat at my desk in the office, then I'm sat at GNOME Shell. It used to be Unity, and now I've switched to GNOME Shell on 1804. Um, but as soon as I leave this room, I pick up my ThinkPad, which is running KDE Neon, the same one from the Distro Challenge months ago. Um, and I use that. And if I go into the office and Canonical, there's no way I'm carrying this hulking great laptop. So I take my ThinkPad into the office. So probably 60-40 split, I would say, between GNOME Shell and KDE Neon. Oh, okay. And yes, I do still love it. I've just finished doing a review of the KDE Slimbook, uh, which will go out next week 31st on Ubuntu podcast nice um, and it's it, the KD Eastern book and KD Neon together I'm sorry about that train going by uh, it's like they were designed for each other it's just great on that laptop it's perfect oh boy I look forward to hearing that so what do you think do you think uh, there is more buzz around cute and plasma these days or is yeah. it just because I'm using it more I, th- I think they've they've got over that hill where it seemed that everything was insurmountable, that it was just everything looked bad, it performed bad, it felt bad, and everyone just felt awful using it. And they've got past that. You know, that's now in the past, and we can forget all about that and move on and use what they have now, which is brilliant. And I get updates all the time because they've, they've got a KDE Neon repo that's enabled on the KDE Neon images, so I get constant flow of updates. I'm always getting the new crack, it's fantastic. It's really great. I love it. It kind of feels like those post-320 days uh, in the GNOME world when, oh yes, this stuff is new and it's usable now and you can actually use it in a real system and it yeah. just works. I really think we need to draw a line in the sand and say, you know what? What went before, some of it wasn't good. But let's look forward. Let's move forward and look at all the great work the KDE guys are doing and the great work that Kubuntu are doing to integrate that into Ubuntu so that if people want to stay on Ubuntu and don't like the idea of this fast movie KDE Neon thing, they can have Kubuntu. But And all the other distros that are using KDE as well, like OpenSUSE and, and everyone else, they're all delivering the best of what KDE guys are doing. It's, I'm blown away by it. You know, I just gave, uh, I just gave the latest OpenSUSE um, a go, um, and it's, um, it's, it's not bad. Uh, OpenSUSE Leap 15, and uh, but they but they they change a few of the defaults in Plasma that I feel like maybe were um, a good idea, like replacing the launcher and a few other things. Um, but now I kind of now I I, I kind of dislike it. I, I feel like it's it's uh, not as good as the upstream stuff. I thought uh, OpenSUSE was mostly pure upstream. Is that not the case? Yeah, well, their launcher's not. That's for sure. 
um, <clears throat> and I don't know. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. I'm sorry to just dis- derail the show, but somebody just, a motorcyclist just drove by my window and he was sitting on his handlebars. He was not sitting in the wow. seat of his motorcycle. This town is crazy. Also, there's just some crazy people walking around with their clothes off, nothing <laughs> but their underwear on, carrying signs about Jesus in this town. This is a, this is a fun one to hang out in. Anyways, back to OpenSUSE. Yeah, I mean, so I just gave Leap a try for Linux Action News. Pretty solid, pretty solid release, really. And I like the fact that they're um, they're going to make it official that you can upgrade from uh, Leap to uh, Enterprise. But um, yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like you're right, Popey, that we should just sort of draw a line and say things were kind of bad, and now things are better. We've worked on things, and things have gotten better. And maybe some decisions like replacing the launchers. Um, or replacing the login manager and things like that. Maybe it's time to reconsider some of that. And to be fair, I kind of feel like that's what Ubuntu just did recently with the 1710 release was like a huge reconsideration. If you look back at uh, that original Hacker News thread about all of the stuff they wanted to change in 1710 or um, before 1710 when people were submitting suggestions and then you look what shipped, a lot of that stuff got rethought. And I think every distribution just needs to do that from time to time. And I think people's assumptions about some of these desktops and... File systems needs to be rethought. BcacheFS is working on going upstream in the Linux kernel. I am a patron of Kent Overstreet because damn am I excited about this development. Uh, and he's been spending a few years working on BcacheFS. And it's based out of the Bcache block cache technology. And he's working now to upstream that to the mainline kernel. He believes, Kent believes, that the on-disk format, bcachefs, is now in good shape, and he doesn't see any major on-disk format changes coming from this point forward. bcachefs is ready to go. It's a copy on-write file system that supports native compression, encryption, caching, snapshots, multiple devices, and lots of other modern capabilities. So we can just sort of look at ButterFS and say, guys, that was a great effort. Thank you so much. What's come before is appreciated, but let's look forward to BcacheFS maybe shipping in 4.18 if we're lucky. What do you think, Wes? Yeah, it does kind of feel like the the last great Linux file system hope for the modern era. And, you know, it started from Bcache, which has a really, has had solid technical foundations. Lots of people have used it. We've been kind of, it's been in the wings waiting, just quietly working. It's it's somewhat surprising in some sense that there's been less, there hasn't been that much resistance. It seems like, you know, Kent obviously benefits from having a long history working with the kernel community in, in contributions. So he kind of knows how to play the game here. And there's not a ton of crazy changes all around the kernel that have to get made to facilitate this being up, upstreamed. Now, of course, we should we have to wait and see how the patches are received, see what the actual review is, what kind of you know timeline is it going to be a couple releases? Is it going to end up in, in 4.18? Who knows? But as a personal user of BcacheFS and having to you know compile the module myself and, and add it in, I'm not doing anything fancy with it, but it, it's it's been rock solid for me. Interesting, I also saw there's there's some talk here of providing an upgrade patch for, for Bcache users. I guess a lot of what Bcache FS really is is just an improved version oh. of Bcache. So at some point when you want to switch to this new code, you'll be able to kind of transparently do so. That's really cool. Yeah, um, you make a good point that there isn't a lot of dramatic changes that have to happen to the Linux kernel to actually facilitate this. So it could be uh, pretty smooth, and Kent does have the experience there. TechMav in the IRC, irc.geekshed.net, pound Jupiter Broadcasting, he's asking if there's any updates on uh, Strata or Stratus from Red Hat. 
which, if you recall, is their disk management system that looks like it's a whole bunch of really nice utilities, including things like the XFS disk format and whatnot, that are sort of brought together um, as a ButterFS replacement or ZFS alternative. And um, I don't think there's a big movement publicly at TechMav, but I believe... If things go as planned, we may see more in Fedora 29, and I think there is some previews in Fedora 28 for Strata as well. I expect that's going to be something that lands surprisingly at some point. It'll just drop. Yeah, and then it'll be in a Red Hat Enterprise release. It'll be like in the next big release. Yeah, exactly. But if none of that works out for you, then why not try NetBSD? Because at least over at the NetBSD project this week, they're announcing some of the initial results from a massive audit of the NetBSD network stack. It's just wrapping up now. It's been going on for five freaking months. Already hundreds of patches have been committed to the source tree as a result of the work. Dozens of bugs have been fixed and a good number of actual remote triggering vulnerabilities were discovered. Changes were made to NetBSD's networking stack to strengthen the networking subsystem and improve code quality, and it was done in several layers of the NetBSD kernel, from drivers all the way up to the main L4 handlers. And a lot of cleanup took place as well. And uh, it, it's, looks, it's one of these, oh, and also code removal, but it's one of these things when I see this I go, can we do this in all of the places? So I tried to dig in and figure out like what's actually happening here in a code review like this. And it feels very nebulous. It, it can be, it can vary a lot from static code analysis, gener- you know, machine, you just, you know, scripts, you run it through that just do static code analysis to like experts reviewing the code. There's a big range of, uh, of ways to audit code, but it does seem like every time we do something like this, a whole bunch of stuff is discovered. I, I, I really applaud the NetBSD project for sitting down and doing this work. Um, and then also uh, trying to see if maybe some of those same things apply to some of the other BSDs. It's nice to see that happening. Even if it's not a Linux-related story, it's nice to see an audit like this. Oh, yeah, right. I mean, NetBSD is super useful. It's a great open-source operating system. And, it, it, you know, it's just done a great job of main, maintaining a, a pretty clean code base and they have good features there's a lot of stuff happening there we don't talk about very much and uh props to them for taking security seriously yeah and it's good to see that the bsds can actually do this from time to time because nobody uses them of course so therefore these things need to happen i mean um uh oh i had to it's linux unplugged after all there is a great bit of write-up in the uh blog post that we'll have linked to the show notes at linuxunplugged.com slash 251 about like the actual bugs and what they caused and how they were fixed. It's it's really in-depth, tech snap level in-depth kind of stuff if you want to go get all kind of cray-cray. Maybe maybe even future tech snap material if those uh, BSC Now guys don't steal it from us, Wes. I hope they don't. Now let's talk about an app pick this week. We haven't done one yet in the show. Slow-mo video. Everybody's all about it on YouTube. But how do you do it? How do you do it? How do you do it with open source software? Slow-mo video on GitHub accomplishes just that. It's slow-mo for all the things, and uh, it'll give you a nice step-by-step way to create three different types of slow-mo, in case that wasn't enough slow-mo. You can have three different types, and uh, it is linked in the show notes, and it does, of course, work on Linux. Slow-mo video for all the things. Why not? Have it. You can have it. And if you can't do it open source, like, can you even really do it at all? We say no. You know, it's not, you know, what we, should, we shouldn't call it open source or free software. We should call it sustainable. It's sustainable software. There we go. Sustainable software. Yeah. You heard it here first, folks. Small batch. <laughs> <laughs> Small batch, sustainable, organically, locally sourced, 
open source software. That's what you should call it. Uh, we'll, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Now, I want to thank Ting. Uh, thank you so much, Ting, for making even, even a couple of bars in Grants Pass when the whole town is out of internet possible. At least the cell towers still have internet. Ting is smarter than unlimited. If you use less, you pay less. So go to linux.ting.com. They'll take $25 off a device. If you have one that's compatible because they have GSM and CDMA, then they'll give you $25 in service credit. Now, I'm sitting here in a tiny hotel room, if you can't tell, which sounds nothing like my regular studio. And uh, I, I am literally in a town that is without internet today. And if it wasn't for Ting, I wouldn't even be able to record in this tiny hotel room while they work on Lady Jupes. It's... So flexible, and this is what I love about it as a small business owner. I'm going to take a minute. I usually I try to I try to talk about this from a consumer standpoint, but this week I want to talk to you guys about this from a small business standpoint. If you have more than three lines and you're on Ting, you're going to start saving money immediately as a small business owner. If you go above ten lines, nobody in the U.S. is going to beat Ting. It's six dollars a month for the line, and then it's just your minutes, your megabytes, your your whatever. You're just you just pay for what you use. It's not like um. It's not like uh, in the in the past where I worked in other organizations where every single line was like $25 to add a line. And then we had like this really complicated pool of minutes and a pool of data. And so if one person was using a lot of data while they were in some really kind of tiny hotel room, then the rest of the team would sort of have to try to conserve data because we had this pool that we were pulling. It's so complicated and so obtuse that the staff didn't really track it and didn't really pay attention, and, and it didn't really work for anybody. And with Ting, it's just it's really easy for everyone to understand. $6 for the line and then your usage on top of that. That's it. It's so straightforward. The average Ting bill is just $23 per phone per month. That's easy. That's totally easy. And if you go to Ting, they have an excellent control panel. You can turn off individual services or set limits and usage alerts and all of that kind of stuff. It's, it's so useful when I'm on the road or when we have an event going on. I cannot tell you how great it is. And they really don't care what you want to use or how you want to use it. I really appreciate that too. Like if you get to a point where, where you can get some crazy ass uh, wearable device with Asteroid OS or something on a cellular network... Ting's cool with that. Just go buy a SIM card directly from them. They have this approach that's really kind of hands-off. And I, I'm putting words in their mouth, but they're just a dumb pipe. They just, they're just they totally cool. If you only want to use them as a dumb pipe to get data down to a device, totally okay with that. And if you want to use them for emergency phone calls and you have like a phone in your glove box that you use every now and then, they're totally okay with that too. I love that. And they got no big like strategic reason, no strategy tax for why they can't just send updates down to your phone. They're not going to get in the way with the Ting experience. So if you want to go get something from them or bring your own device and you want to get updates every single month, if you want a device that stays updated and secure, they're not going to get in the way of that. I like all of those things. Linux.ting.com. Go there to support the show and get $25 off a device and get $25 in service credit if you bring your own device. Linux.ting.com. Oh yeah. All right. I want to try something new? You ready, Wes? You got your get your get your pants unbuttoned. Make make room for uh, ultimate comfort. Here we go. Let's talk about Fedora twenty six. Fedora twenty six, which came out two releases ago. Let's 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 spend a moment and talk about it. 
I thought about I thought about making this an official segment on the show, but instead, this is just an FYI to Fedora users. Fedora 26 is ending its its life support. It's 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 no longer getting patches very very soon. And I wanted to kind of give you a PSA, but I thought let's look back and see where we were at. And I might do this with future uh, distros too as they as they end support. Maybe look back at their prime, see what they brought new to the table back then, which is kind of interesting to look where we're sitting at now. So as you know, Fedora 28 was recently released, which means Fedora 26 is hitting end of life on May 29th, 2018. That's just, uh, well, that's today. Mm. So as this episode records, that is right now, it is end of life. Fedora 26 is end of life. So you may, you may feel like that's a little early and you're right. Uh, Fedora 28 was released on time. You see, that doesn't normally happen for the Fedora project. And I forgot to make a big deal about it at the time, so I'm making up for that right now. But see, they screwed you when they released it on time. They, they, screwed, you, they screwed you if you're a Fedora 26 user because uh, that means that Fedora 26 is now at that end of life period. Even though it hasn't fully been 11 months for Fedora 26, it's part of the life cycle for Fedora. Um, so I, you know, you, you just kind of, you kind of have to just move on now. And I apologize for all of you Noah Chalayas out there that are still rocking Fedora 26 and everything's working good. That's just the way this works. And we all knew it. And that's why I've been testing the upgrades for a long, long time now. So I, I, I recommend you upgrade to Fedora 28 and I tested going from Fedora 26 to Fedora 28 and it, it works good. Um, it wasn't a super complicated rig, but I, I would recommend it. And I think it's worth considering because Fedora 26, while it was really great, Fedora 28, I think, is one of their best releases, and I think it's a pretty solid upgrade. But let's look back at 26 for a moment. Just, just take a moment and look back at 26. During its lifetime, the Fedora community published nearly 10,000 updates to Fedora 26's repositories. Uh, during Fedora 26's uh, release, it was hyped for having version 3.24 of GNOME. It came with a new partitioning tool in Anaconda, and it shipped with DNF 2.5, as well as the Python Classroom Lab. And uh, that, you know, all in itself, the new partitioning, actually, the new partitioning tool in Anaconda was kind of a big deal. And it was something that even Wes and I remarked on our review of 28 recently, is that this is still a little odd. Oh, yeah. I love that thing. So looking back on Fedora 26, pretty nice release, but here's the cadence you need to keep in mind. The Fedora project provides updates for a particular release until a month after the second subsequent version of Fedora is released. So Fedora 26 continues to one month after Fedora 28 has been released. So here we are. It is time to pay. But time does move on. Things that were done in the past have wrapped up. It's time to embrace the new stuff. And if you're a Fedora 28 user already, then you're probably looking forward to Fedora 29, which comes with a new D-Bus, D-Bus Broker. Also, Project Silver Blue, or Atomic Workstation, whatever you like to call it, is supposedly getting a more feature-complete release. And we're going to see Xorg 1.20 in Fedora 29. So there's already some nice things in the works for the next version of Fedora. I think it's going to be your new distro of choice, Wes. I can see it already. I am actually kind of excited. And maybe if you're like big into IoT, it sounds like there's going to be an IoT edition? Hmm. Everybody's making IoT editions. It's the next big thing. I mean, their goal is to be, the, you know, the default IoT operating system. We'll see if it happens. Now, I guess, I mean, if it was, if this was two years ago, it would be a mobile edition, and now it's IoT edition. Yeah, you're right. Next up, blockchain edition. <laughs> right? <laughs> 
Fedora is, um, in my opinion, better than ever. And I think uh, if you haven't tried it for a while, it's worth taking another look because I think 28 was a great release. And I've been, I've been using the hell out of uh, QO notes and Nextcloud on Fedora 28. So that's sort of been sort of been uh, influencing my opinion of what makes it such a good release. It's been working great for me on the server. Surprise, surprise. Speaking of servers, do.co slash unplugged. do.co slash unplugged is where you go to get a $100 credit for DigitalOcean. Go over to DigitalOcean and spin up a rig in less than 55 seconds. Everything is SSDs. The entire stack or just the bare system. So take it, for example, Fedora 28 Cloud. When you spin up a Fedora 28 Cloud instance on DigitalOcean, you don't even set a root password. You don't get emailed a root password. You add an SSH key. You add your SSH key because this Fedora Cloud is built to run on these exact types of instances. You spin it up in seconds and you just SSH right in and you get working. You can manage all of your DNS. You can add new storage as you need. And they have these flexible droplets where you can mix and match the resources that are most appropriate for your application. So try it out. Go to do.co slash unplugged. You sign up with a new account, you get a $100 credit and you can try it out. They got data centers all over the world, SSDs for everything, $5 a month for the starting price. My favorite rig, three cents an hour. Check it out, do.co slash unplugged. It's DigitalOcean, and it's something that's worth your time. It's worth trying out. It's worth kicking the tires because I've gone from building systems on my LAN to this is my data center now. And I would not lightly tell you that. It's, it's, it took me a couple of years to make the transition. I've been a DigitalOcean customer for years now, um, four years, maybe, maybe even longer. Um, and it's still something that's a transition for me because... I mean, I started in the industry setting up servers and racks. That's really how I got started, is building servers and installing them in racks and really big data centers. And I've always had that mentality. But the flexibility, the control I have, and the speed in which I can get something set up and running in production, it's a game changer for me. It's, it's a real game changer. And I'd like you to try it out. You can get $100 for 60 days to try out the DigitalOcean infrastructure, do.co slash unplugged. Big thank you to DigitalOcean for sponsoring the Unplugged program. I don't know if I ever saw this one coming, but I am very, very happy it is here. The Sega Mega Drive and Genesis Classic is now supported on Linux. There's a big price drop. Now think about this as like this, this arcade to run classic Sega games. And not only did they add Linux support, but they've also upgraded new features like two-player online support, challenge modes, um, ROMs from other regions, which I don't even understand why they put that in there. That's so great. I, I'm, I'm VR support, what? which is ridiculous. Uh, it includes over 50 titles. Yeah, I'm, seriously. And it's all like these classic Sega games that you can now play on Linux. And it's supported by, by them. And it's like 30 bucks for the whole collection, the entire collection. Does this make it the year of the Linux gaming desktop? Have we finally arrived? <laughs> Maybe they're getting ready for all those Chromebooks that are going <laughs> to let you run Linux apps. <laughs> damn it. Um, oh, damn it. I hope that's not why. Actually, now that I said that, uh, but they're shipping it via Steam, so I doubt it. But I suppose you could install Steam on a Chromebook. I don't know. 
LG is shipping um, a 37-inch ultra-wide screen that can run Ubuntu or Linux. Um, Sega Mega Drive is updating for Linux. Chrome, a.k.a. Google, is uh, working hard to get Linux support on Chromebooks. Microsoft is spending a ton of resources and getting a lot of public attention for the Windows subsystem for Linux. And Samsung is trying to make Linux apps run on their mobile phones in some sort of convergence environment. So you tell me, Wes, what the hell is going on right now? It's the future, and I like it. I guess? So why am I sort of worried about all of those individually? Like, all together, this feels like, yay, Linux. But individually, each one of them is freaking me out for different reasons. I mean, it's a little bit like, um, you know, there's there's some FOMO. There's some sort of concern of just like, these, this thing's going in a lot of different ways. How consistent is the experience going to be across these? What sort of idea will new users who are using that form of quote-unquote Linux really get about the, the wider Linux software ecosystem and community? I don't know. It seems it's so early. I feel like we don't we don't really know which ones are going to win, which ones are going to be successful, and how it's all going to shake out. Yeah, and like TechMav says, maybe I'm worried that we're putting the penguins in the zoo. That might be exactly what it is. Is that instead of having this general technology platform OS, it's like this feature. It's like this. It's this bullet point on top of these proprietary commercial products. Um, Popey had a great had a great conversation in the in the uh, last week uh, Ubuntu podcast uh, that was basically uh, has, has Linux sort of failed to attract desktop uh, applications. Instead, we get Electron and whatnot. And then, but at the same time, you see all these companies that are trying to add compatibility for Linux applications. And it's not just command line applications. Um, what do you, Poby, what do you think about that? So you have, you, so uh, I, I'll just encourage people to go listen to last Ubuntu podcast to hear your argument, but you make a very, uh, salient argument that perhaps we're looking at sort of a future that none of us wanted. And we have a lot of Linux installs, but we don't have anybody that's really got a successful Linux application toolkit or desktop toolkit. But yet, at the same time, you've got Chromebooks, you've got the subsystem for Linux, which will I guarantee you will soon have desktop Linux supports apps. Um, you have Samsung. How do you square those two things? Um, we're quite a niche. Like, we're you know, if, if Linux is like the flea on a dog. We're bacteria on the flea. Like we're nothing. Like you compare us to what everyone else is using around the world, and this significant majority don't even know what Linux is, let alone use it. And so developers don't target it because it's just not worth it. You hear time and time again that many developers don't target Linux because it's not worth it because the time investment doesn't pay back. You know, if they release a game, the amount of time and effort to port that game is 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 not repaid and so that's why you see articles by liam on gaming on linux celebrating when someone does do that because it's so rare so few and far between it's like if someone announced a new game for windows it's like well yeah always there's always new games for windows but we we clutch at these these uh, like successful events here and there um but you know they are few and far between and yeah we have in some ways lost I, th- I mean, I think by and large, lost in that sense is is accurate, and we probably won't ever see a mainstream adoption of the of the Linux experience that we know and love that the people listening to this show by and large enjoy. I'm grateful in some sense that you know Electron, those sorts of things that aren't Linux special, but end up working on Linux. Like we've seen more adoption in the case of I feel like I can use my specialty system 
acknowledging that I'm in a niche that I'm doing it, you know, in a, in a strange way to most people, but actually get work done, mostly be compatible with the rest of the world. I do think though that like, there's not a lot of chance that, you know, maybe, maybe your relatives will be using Linux and you won't have to be the IT guy, but it won't be the Linux that you know or are familiar with. I feel like I was a bit of a Debbie Downer in that episode. And, you know, we had a lot of feedback from people saying, well, it depends how you define success. You know, there's still millions of people using Linux, both, you know, in servers and billions using it on their, their phones. But on the desktop specifically, I think uh, we're far from what you would call like massively successful yeah, definitely. Uh, compared to the others. And we've been doing this for a long time now. I think if the experience has gotten better, right? Like it's pretty consistent. Yeah. I've just converted some of my family over to 1804 and they're, they're using Steam on it and having a great time, but we just haven't made any inroads in the, the default deployments in any kind right. of marketing. And don't get me wrong. I love yeah, it. Right. Yeah, of course. And, and I want to spread the word and I want more people to use it, but we need to attract developers to build software for our platform or people aren't going to use our platform. Nobody switched to Linux for G-Edit. Nobody <laughs> right, switched yeah. to Linux for you know, GNOME Calculator. They're, you've got to have that killer app. You've got to have some reason for people to switch. Some people switch for freedom. Some people switch because resource management. Some people switch for the privacy, right? But there's very few killer apps that make people think, yes, I definitely today want to install Linux, whereas someone will actively go and buy a Mac for software that is only available on the Mac. And people will install Windows specifically for a piece of software that is only available on Windows. And we don't have that. Right. And we don't have a big brand anymore, really. You know, there isn't someone, a big marketing organization. There isn't some sort of company. We have we have pieces here and there, but there's not, you know, we don't have a, Ubuntu was the closest and maybe maybe that can can be rekindled. But with some, you know, there's feelings of not having much focus in that area or less focus there feels even farther away, maybe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, though, we do win on one level, and that is the fiddly experience if you get the right system. Um, I've been I've been recently listening to fellow podcaster Mike Hurley go through the process of setting up a Windows 10 gaming system. Now, he, Mike, is a, is a Mac guy. Uh, through and through, he, uh, he loves Macs and, and uh, iPads and all that kind of stuff. And so he never really built a Windows PC in his life. And he... Uh, never had to deal with device drivers, never had to deal with uh, different vendors making different components for his PC. And so for the last two weeks, he has been dealing with driver hell. Like uh, he needed to get his Tascam recorder so, so he can do podcasting and live streaming working. And when he did that, it broke his Bluetooth driver. And then when he fixed his Bluetooth driver, it broke SLI on his video gaming setup. And then when he fixed the SLI setup, it caused another issue. And um, this is a brand new system that he just put together. And all of this fiddliness that he has to do is something you don't really screw around with. On Linux, you may have to deal with a binary blob for your video card here and there. But for the most part, everything, if it's going to work, it just works. You're not dealing with drivers. You're not dealing with all of these separate sources to get stuff. I think we have lost sight of how easy Linux makes some of this stuff. Um, and uh, I say that because... I was going over setting up a, a new broadcasting system based on Linux for Linux Academy. And man, is it so much easier when the bullet point to getting the whole OS and all of your device drivers working is install Kubuntu 18.04. <laughs> That's it, right? Then, but done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You're done. Like you don't have to mess with anything else. You install Kubuntu 18.04. That's a good uh, argument for why a lot of people moved away from Linux to things like the maker community because 
like it was fun and interesting when you had to to some degree for some people to edit your xorg.conf and make sure the right demons were starting when you start up and i know a lot of art users still do that and still find that interesting and fun i don't and the vast majority of people don't they just want to put an iso image on a cd boot that cd or usb install it and then move on and i, I think a lot of enthusiasts move on from the linux community because that's not fun anymore you could just install the os and then mm. you use it as a tool now People are doing things like Arduinos and microcontrollers and 3D printers and stuff like that, which are more interesting because they are challenging and they, they don't work straight away. And it's not like putting a USB key in and it just works. There's a lot of fiddling and fettling mm. to do. So I think, I think we've lost mm. some of that. We're victims of our own success. Try out SUSE. It's just like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're in a mood today. I just kid because every time I apparently say something, it it triggers Richard, and then he has to tweet me about it because uh, uh, I give him a hard time for uh, it. It asked me to confirm my network configuration and card and probe my Fireware devices on LAN, and so he, he gave me a tweet about it. But I I, I tease. Um, yeah, I agree, Poby. Maybe you're right. Maybe that is why some people are moving away. But I don't. Um, I don't feel it as somebody who has been trying to make Linux work on my desktop since long before it was appropriate to do so, and I don't know why my employers let me get away with it, to now where it's what I make my living doing. And I got to tell you, as somebody who is using it now, it is so much easier than it used to be. It is ridiculous. I am doing this live show, this entire freaking live show from Grants Pass, Oregon, in this stinky, tiny hotel room all on Linux, end-to-end. I am even in the studio, like the machines that are doing all the routing and the recording and the processing and all of it, or everything, even the mixer, is Linux from, from end-to-end. Um, and that was that would not have been the case a couple of years ago. Right, and we're victims of our own success there. We're like, yeah. it's, it's got to the point where you can do a live stream and you could take your show on the road and everything works. Like, why would you need nerds around you to help you fix it? Because it all works now. Yeah, that's good and bad, isn't it? I mean, it's good for getting to a larger consumer base. And uh, my big my big drive for always trying to get wider user adoption has always been for wider application support. I just, for some really naive reason, thought it would be native application support. <laughs> I don't know what it right. was. Yeah, I think we a lot of us did, and <laughs> yeah. we were wrong. Yeah, I did not expect this. Uh, but along those lines, I also didn't expect this to happen. And it is actually happening. If I say the name Red when it comes to media production, I think a lot of you would immediately think of those really high-end, beautiful Red 8K cameras. And uh, the thing about those Red cameras is that they are a beast onto their own. They have their own proprietary capture hardware to pull that stuff down. They have their own RAW format. And I say RAW because it's not quite RAW. Like when I when I think of RAW, I think of RAW data. When they think of RAW, they think of a tool that you need to re-encode that to make it readable by anything else. And that has only been available on the Mac and on Windows, except for today. Today, Red is releasing their Redline tool and their Red Undead tool, which are two different utilities for managing footage that has been recorded on a Red 8K camera. They're releasing them for Linux. And uh, they're native Linux applications. Uh, they're not perfect. I don't, have a, I don't have a Red camera to test, so I just downloaded the applications and ran them. I didn't, I didn't have any footage to import. Uh, uh, but they... They support uh, export to uh, what I consider to be really high-end intermediate exchange formats. So these, um, 
much like how when you're moving um, a, an audio file or a picture between editing and you don't want to keep re- recompressing it like to JPEG or whatever or to MP3, um, you have that same issue with video. And so a lot of times editors use something like ProRes, MJPEG, or a bunch of other stuff. And their Linux version of this red utility is going to support a lot of those, including Apple's ProRes. So that way you can download footage on a Linux box and you can convert it to ProRes on a Linux box. Wow. That's, that's a big deal, I think. And yeah, I don't know why Red's doing this, but um, I think that is a really good sign. I wonder if there's just less, you know, there, there's already a lot of Linux deployed at the higher end production studios. Is it just, you know, it makes their pipeline simpler if they don't have to include some other things they can get this streamed up and then, you know, sure the ProRes ends up on some Mac where they, they maybe edit it down the line, but keeps it a l- little simpler. It is kind of funny if you look at the at their website, even it says Redline Linux and then beta, of course, but at the bottom... They still have the, the the Mac and Windows logo for the release. <laughs> yeah, it's new. It just launched today. The site's not totally done yet. Hey, I noticed that too. It's like, um, so am I getting a Linux version or am I yeah, getting what the, is this? Yeah, what is? But when you download it, it is uh, 100% a Linux application. Oh yeah, so that's that it's in a tar GZ and everything. It's it's yeah, it's full GNU slash. Um, all right, so let's talk about some new hardware. We want we were talking last week about the best Linux laptop for 2018. We got a whole bunch of feedback, and uh, kind of kick this new segment off. We have uh, a batch of new hardware from Dell: thinner, lighter, and more powerful. All things that are good, and we have a whole new line. You have the 3530 and also the 5530, the 7530, Ooh. and the 7730. <laughs> so beefy, yeah. Uh, Barton George, friend of the show, Barton George says these systems, which represent the fourth generation of Precision Developer Editions, come preloaded with Ubuntu, and also have been certified for Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Now, this is on top of the XPS 13 that is already available. The uh, Precision 3530 is the first one that is available. Its starting price is nine hundred and forty-three dollars. That'll get you a fifteen point six inch thirteen sixty-six by seven sixty-eight. Yeah. Don't say it. Just don't even say it. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have even said it. Uh, four gigs of RAM uh, and an Intel i5. So don't get the $943 model yeah. <laughs> unless you have to. Um, and uh, But, you know, you as with all Dells, you can configure it way up from there. There's also going to be the, uh, the other models I mentioned, the 5530, 7530, and 7730 will be shipping later with uh, 16.04 installed on all of them, and, um, uh, you know, 8th gen Intel processors, all those goodies. All the, all the typical goodies that you would get in the latest bump of Dell or any kind of recent uh, laptop hardware. So yeah, yeah, so as we're about to open up this uh, segment here on the show, you have a whole new batch of uh, laptops you could potentially buy. So get, uh, get your credit cards ready. Those precision machines are are pretty slick too. I used the older back when it was the bigger, uglier chassis of the previous generation for a long time, and that it is they're just sturdy, really a good desktop replacement if that's what you need it for. So now that they look a lot nicer, I'm kind of interested. Yeah, yeah, and it's always nice to see them just getting another spec bump, getting you know just to keep see really what's nice actually is just to keep seeing Dell keep working at this, just to keep iterating on this. Yeah, 
it's more Linux momentum. Mm-hmm. And it's paid off. So we, uh, we sent out the vote last episode. And you know what I have found over the years is we may have thousands of you download this, tens of thousands of you download this, but only a few hundred of you ever really vote on these polls. But anywhere between a couple of hundred and a thousand, it almost always shakes out to be the same. And uh, I guess I guess that's just the way the the math works. So let's uh, let's start with what didn't do well and what did well. Last week we asked the audience what is the best Linux laptop on this list for 2018. Uh, we had the Oryx Pro on there. We had the ThinkPad X270 and 280, the uh, X1 Carbon, the Librem 15, and the XPS 13. And we asked you guys, what do you think is, if you were going to buy one today, which laptop would you buy? And I also said, whichever laptop doesn't win the vote, we'll just take off the list, and we won't be recommending that one to folks. And the one that, the one that, the one that fell off the list this week, I'm, I'm really kind of on... Um, unsatisfied with. I, it's really unfortunate, and maybe it's partially my fault. Uh, the Librem 15 only got 5% of votes. 5% of votes. Yeah, it, it, it is a big ouch. And I don't, I don't know what's going on here. I, I, think this, I think there's a bigger problem that purism is dealing with, and it's this, um, it's this sort of outsider status that they, I feel like they have. I feel like people don't know about them, and they don't think about them when they think of Linux-first hardware. Um, and I, I, I can't really put my finger on it. I don't know if it's because they did crowdfunding, or if it's because they're kind of going their own way with pure OS. I kind of have more of a sense it's that, but what, what's your impression on that, Wes? Do you, do you feel like uh, maybe they're not getting a fair shake? Because you, you have a vendor here who is making hardware just for Linux, physical kill switches, it only ships Linux, and it is the bottom of our list. You know, it might just be a weird uh, subset of people that are kind of interested in this. They're not always, you know, they're not always bargain basement, so if you're on a budget, they're not super expensive, then it's not necessarily an Apple tax, but it's it's a little bit more over like a a minimal XPS or something like that. And I think some of these pre-installed or, you know, super customized strange distributions are off-putting to experience users that, that feel that they're going to have to flash it anyway, and maybe you just want some, you know, uh, to, to, to quote Bopi, bog standard hardware that you're going you're gonna to install your own distribution on anyway. And then for people that would benefit more from a pre-installed Linux that don't want to mess with it so much, they probably haven't heard of them. I mean, there has been a, a kind of bumpy track record too. I know like their, their most recent, Lima 15 is, is a nice piece of hardware, but I don't know if they've just had enough of a track record now in the good for people to have a lot of trust in an expensive purchase. Yeah, that's also a good point. Uh, good points, Wes, all in all. Mumblerum, do you have anything to add? Uh, why do you think it is that purism isn't higher up on our list? And why isn't a Librem 15 or 13 more forward uh, from Linux users when they want to buy a Linux-first laptop? I think if you have a support problem, you you would like an established company, maybe. Also, maybe the keyboard. Let's say you have some worldwide audition, and uh, here in Switzerland, I cannot buy a Librem uh, laptop because of the missing keyboard for Switzerland. Yeah, I mean, definitely international is a problem that uh, is hard for a company like Purism that's just getting started to address, but it does seem like a deeper issue. I'd like to know the audience's thoughts because honestly, I feel like they maybe deserve a little more credit than they're getting. I was skeptical when I got my Librem 15, the original one, and it wasn't what I wanted. But when they did a make good and they sent me a uh, like a second or third iteration on the Librem 15, it was a marked improvement in quality. Like I could easily see where the trend line was going. 
And it's not just me that said that. Like I, when, uh, when we have guests in the studio besides Wes, cause Wes brings his own hardware, but when we have guests in the studio, uh, I give them the Librem 15 to use, and people constantly remark on how nice the machine is. And when Noah was in town, he sat down. He's like, "Really? This is the Librem 15? This is way nicer than I thought it would be." And a lot of people comment on how great the keyboard is, and the the, the design looks great, the performance is good, um, and it it really is the it is the big loser on our list. And I don't really understand because the number two on our list is the Oryx Pro. Well, these are the only two systems on our list that are created by vendors that only make stuff for Linux, that only ship Linux. System 76 and the Librem 15. That with the uh, System 76, you could have put the Galago Pro. We decided to put the Oryx Pro because we were going for something a little high, more. It was brand new and high performance. Um, but, you know, still, uh, the fact that ThinkPads and the XPS are dominating this list, I think, is telling. And so the XPS 13 is the one that was the clear winner, 44% of the votes. The number two uh, was the X1 Carbon with 20% of the votes. And then the number three was the X270 with 17% of the votes. So the Carbon and the X270 were the closest. Then, you know, it drops down to the Oryx Pro at 15%, and then the Librem 15 at 5%. That's devastating. And it, it, again, gives me concern about how the Librem 5 is going to do. So these are bad numbers for the vendors that ship only Linux systems, and I, I can't explain it, to be honest with you, because um, if, if everything I hear is consistent, people want companies that are making computers for Linux first. But then when you look at the actual numbers in our polls, or you go to any any kind of conference or event, and it's 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 stacked full of MacBooks, ThinkPads, and then Dells. That's the three. And then the fourth would be the, maybe an HP. And then the fifth is like a mix of Chromebooks. That's what you get when you go to these events. I, I don't know what to make of that. Anybody in the Mumble Room have additional thoughts on why these Linux-only vendors are not not doing super well in our Linux user poll? Well, I would have to say that there's also the the original premise of purism was, well, I think the premise still is like to be privacy-focused, and that sort of marketing sort of alienates people on, on occasion. I suppose if you don't, you know, if you're not marketing for the other factors, because it's not like, you know, some of the privacy features don't really detract from the rest of the system. But if all you're hearing is, oh, this is all about privacy, these are the features, this is what makes this great, and less about this is why this should just be a good laptop for you, then, yeah, maybe you're less interested. I mean, and also a lot of the uh, Linux uh, laptop brands are based in Europe, and they don't have a foothold in the uh, United States yet. So I don't see any sort of competition. I know the Sputnik program at Dell is sort of an initiative, but... Is there really a enough competition in order to get Linux-based laptops into a market of their own? Bobby, do you have any thoughts? Um, I've not actually seen uh, a Librem laptop, but they've sent us one for review. So uh, very soon now, Mark has it, uh, and uh, we'll we'll be comparing because I believe the one we've got is the same hard physical hardware as the KDE Slimbook Two that I reviewed. That I've, that I've got for review. So interestingly, we'll be able to compare and contrast and decide whether, you know, should you buy the Purism or should you buy the KDE Slimbook? Well, interesting. And then I look forward, I look forward to hearing that. But, you know, the, the votes have it. Uh, we'll, we'll take the Librem 15 off the list and we'll have our list of our recommended laptops for 2018 at least. 
And uh, maybe maybe the Librem 15 gets back on there for 2019. But Dom emailed in. By the way, he emailed us in at linuxunplugged.com slash contact. He said, uh, I have a couple of recommendations depending on which laptop you get. So if you're going to get the XPS 13, they have two different models that they're selling right now. The 9360 and the 9370. And you'll notice this immediately if you start doing research. There's these two different models out there. Dell is selling both of those models uh, with upgraded 8th gen processors. The 93070 is slimmer, but it embraces the dongle lifestyle. And the 93070 has a better screen. Uh, and it's, it's like, in the, that's really saying something because the screen before it was already like one of the best ever. Now, Dom suggests you don't buy the Linux version. Now, you want to double-check this depending on when you listen to this episode, but he says currently the Linux version still has the 7th-gen Intel processor. He recommends get the Windows version of the laptop, but switch out the killer wireless card for an Intel card for better Linux support. Get a 1080p screen for better battery life. And also remember that you're not going to be able to upgrade the RAM later. So keep that in mind when you're specking it. The 93060 has a full side SD card. The 93070 only has micro SD. The 93060 has a larger battery than the 93070, but the 93070 is just slimmer in general. When you're looking at the X270 or X1 carbon models, maybe consider just skipping the X280 right now. Lenovo went kind of MacBook Air on that one, and they removed all of the features that made it great, including soldering some stuff on. So consider if you're going to go with the X270 or 280 line, focus maybe more on the X270 for now. And um, remember, you're going to need an Ethernet dongle with that one. But the XPS 13 was our champion. It was the winning laptop for the poll. So just look at this list. We'll have it linked. Dom's going to suggest that you consider looking at the 93060 versus the 93070 depending on your needs. For me personally, I might still want to go with the 93060 because it's got the 8th generation Intel processor and it's got the larger battery life and it uses less dongles. It just has a downgrade on the screen. Right, and it's already pretty slim. Like, they're not they're not fat laptops. Right, yeah, it's still very, very thin. Very nice laptop. I mean, I have an older one It's from that and it's still very thin and very nice. All right, I think we're done with the laptops. I don't know, I don't know. Hopefully this show wasn't horrible, Wes. I feel like uh, it could have been a little stronger. It could have been a little better if I wasn't running around town beforehand <laughs> trying to find internet. You did have that Levi story, though. That always pulls it out, even though he's not feeling well. We're all glad to hear he's feeling better. And you know, you know, Wes, uh, really, it was for me this week. It was for me just to be able to do this and talk to you guys and not have everything in my life be totally crazy right now. So hopefully the audience loved it. I don't think so, but hopefully a couple of people out there liked it. Let us know, and also let us know your thoughts on the laptops. Linux Action, no, nope, nope, it's not Linux. Although you can go there, it's linuxunplugged.com slash contact. You can, you sure could. <laughs> If you want to let us know over at Linux Action News what you think, you can you can go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact. It's the same URL, just uh, not the same URL. It's a different show. I don't know, Wes. I think it's just totally gone off the rails at this point. We should probably wrap it up. 
But uh, I'll leave uh, Dom's email in the show notes if you guys want to go through his list because I know I just went through the highlights and all the other things we talked about at linuxunplugged.com slash 251. Go check it all out there. Mr. Payne, where can they get more of you? You can find me on Twitter at Wes Payne or go to techsnap.systems to check out our other wonderful show. Yeah, so go get more Wes and me at techsnap.systems. I'm at Chris LAS. I'll be tweeting some updates along the way. And the whole network is at Jupiter Signal. Thanks so much for tuning this week's episode of the Unplugged program. And we'll see you back here next Tuesday. Uh, before we get out of here, guys, thank you, everybody. Mumble Room, thank you very much for putting up with all of that. I know that was difficult and challenging, so I really appreciate you guys being here. Thank you, guys. Go vote, people who are still around. We do have J- JBot seems to be alive today. <laughs> yeah, JBot. JBot survives. Yeah. <laughs> I tell you what, <laughs> this day, the one thing I, the one thing I didn't get a chance to say uh, because I just I was sick of derailing the show. But while I'm sitting here during the last few minutes of the show, I saw somebody go by. He's wearing a motorcycle helmet, no shirt, and then I think <laughs> he's wearing pants. I couldn't quite tell. And he was sitting outside the sunroof of a suburban, and they were going down the road. So to to make it clear, this guy was sitting on top of a suburban outside the sunroof with no shirt on, wearing a motorcycle helmet, going down the road in front of this motel room. Well, at least he's thinking, you know, about safety first. That's the only way to get a good tan when you're on the road.